Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. This is an age of huge opportunity and also great risk for the U.S. natural gas industry. Over the past decade, fracking technology has driven unprecedented growth in American natural gas production. Today, gas powers 40% of U.S. electricity generation and is also the most important fuel for home heating. And this year, the U.S. is on track to become the world's number one exporter of liquefied natural gas as Asia and Europe compete to pay top dollar for shipments of LNG. On the face of things, the outlook couldn't be better for U.S. gas producers. Yet the industry's dramatic growth coincides with an accelerating shift toward clean energy technology, growing investor ESG concerns around the use of natural gas, and political division over gas exports. As a result, gas producers have generally shown restraint when it comes to new investment in gas resources, as they've weighed near-term market opportunity against these longer-term risks. Here to talk about the complex range of domestic and global dynamics that are shaping the U.S. natural gas industry is my guest, Robert Johnston. Robert is Managing Director of Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate, and Resources Practice, and he is a research scholar at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you this morning. So let's start with a basic question about the natural gas market. According to data from the United States Energy Administration, or the EIA, domestic U.S. demand for natural gas has flattened and is expected to continue to fall. And this seems a bit surprising given the massive demand shift toward gas over the past decade plus. What's driving this current decline in U.S. gas demand? Well, I think there's a, a couple things going on here. Um, first of all, I mean, gas demand in the industrial and power sector in the U.S., it's been uh, stimulated, I would say, by um, low prices, which in turn have been driven by abundant supply of shale gas for, for really about a decade now. Uh, if you go back to 2010, the economy in the U.S. was using about 22 trillion cubic feet a year of natural gas. And now in, in 2021, uh, we're up to about 30 trillion cubic feet a year. So I think one factor to consider here is that level of demand growth um, would be hard to sustain. Uh, a second thing to consider, which I think is actually probably quite central uh, to the EIA forecast that you mentioned, is that in the power sector, uh, of course, there's an expectation in that forecast that renewable power, i.e. wind and solar, uh, will further displace natural gas generation in the years ahead. Um, right now, we look at the sectoral breakdown of natural gas demand, uh, about one third to one half, uh, depending on the time of year of US gas consumption is from the electric power sector. And what's happening, of course, is that wind and solar uh, are getting lower cost. Their capacity factor and utilization is increasing which is eating into uh, the capacity factor utilization for natural gas. Now, when you look at the forecast for demand in the future, I think a lot will depend on, you know, how, how the industry and the government manage the challenges around, you know, interconnectivity on the grid and the intermittency of renewables. But the expectation is that, you know, more renewables be penetrated and that will displace gas. And I think the last thing to consider on the demand side is, is the elasticity of prices, right? Um, you know, I think right now, 
the last 18 months or so of higher Henry Hub prices might be slowing demand in the short term as well. Um, it, it weakens industrial demand, uh, maybe certainly not as much here in the U.S. as we've seen in Europe, but it also here in the U.S. can drive some fuel switching to coal uh, in the power sector as well. On the other hand, of course, um, those higher prices should be encouraging supply growth as well. Yeah, so on the short term, from the demand side here in the United States, I, I guess you have some increase in coal generation lately because gas has gotten more expensive. But in the longer term, it looks like renewables are having an impact, a yet-to-be-determined final impact, but impact on demand for, for gas generation. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's no longer cost, a question of cost and whether renewables compete with natural gas. They are, they are you know, solar and wind costs have come down a lot. It is competitive uh, with natural gas. The real question is, you know, what do you do when you don't have, uh, you know, the solar resource and the wind resource available? And how do you create a structure so that gas can be the, the firming capacity, you know, or is it going to be something else like batteries or hydrogen? And, and those things are not really at, at scale yet. So, yeah, I think that's the question is, you know, renewables have become much cheaper. There's a strong policy momentum federally and in many states to increase their penetration even further. But until you really solve this problem of intermittency uh, and the backup generation, through whether it's through grid connection or, or batteries or more natural gas, you know, that's going to be a, a constraint on exactly how much renewable penetration we can get. Now, globally, demand for gas has risen quite dramatically, particularly in Asia and in Europe. To give us some perspective, can you give us insight into the global drivers of gas demand and how they mirror or, or differ from the situation here in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question because, um, you know, gas demand is not the same everywhere. Uh, and I think the, the global ga- growth drivers are uh, quite different, especially in Asia. Um, if you look at Asia over the last few years, the big story, I think, for gas has been the so-called gasification of the Chinese economy. And that's not happening as much in the power sector, but much more so in in commercial and residential heating. So now when you have a cold winter um, in in China, uh, that really means more LNG is going to go to China than you would have seen five or 10 years ago because they're using less coal for heat, uh, you know, in sort of small residential boilers and furnaces and, and commercial boilers and furnaces and trying to build out more gas distribution. Now, China's a big gas importer, as we know. So that's been a key trend. Um, Now, when you look at the rest of Asia, uh, gas is also gaining market share versus coal in Southeast Asia. Uh, But those markets, I think, are much more price sensitive than China is. So when when LNG prices are high like they are now, they tend to default to coal. uh, And and coal certainly has a lot of domestic political support in countries like Indonesia and India, uh, which is a factor as well. But nonetheless, I think gas is gaining market share there. Now, if we look at the EU, I think the, the biggest factor there um, is really carbon pricing, which we don't have in the U.S., right? I mean, the carbon pricing uh, is now uh, carbon allowance prices are, you know, 80, 90 euros, which obviously is very significant. Uh, and that really helps displace coal um, and help natural gas and renewables, of course. But the challenge is right now, um, gas is already expensive because of some of the supply tightness in Russia and global LNG. So the combination of that high carbon price and high LNG prices, you know, makes for high, um, you know, power and gas prices in the EU. Yeah. So I think to tie this first little section of our conversation together, as I I mentioned in the intro, uh, this year, uh, the United States is expected to become the the number one exporter of LNG. 
to relate that international demand back to what's happening here in this country, how global is the overall demand picture in the U.S.? Or to state it another way, when we look at producers and how much gas they're producing, how much are they dependent upon global demand for their businesses? I think for the biz- business of, of today, you know, global demand is not critical. Um, it would have you would have said it has absolutely no relevance, you know, five or ten years ago. But now that the U.S. is exporting, you know, ten billion cubic feet a day or so of gas, you know, certainly that global demand has a big factor, and you know, it drives kind of high utilization of our LNG capacity. Um, but that that's sort of dwarfed by the overall market, which is you know seven or eight times bigger um, than than the, the export market is. So you know, I would say the global factors are gaining significance, and they are pulling that U.S. LNG out, especially sort of U.S. LNG that's on kind of spot market basis. Uh, but overwhelmingly, the the key factors are still the domestic factors in the U.S., which really are you know number one, heating and cooling, which is weather. Uh, number two, you know, electricity demand and the role of natural gas versus other fuels. And then number three, the sort of general economy and industrial demand, um, you know, in manufacturing and, you know, fertilizer and things like that, that, that are critical. So those those factors, I think, domestically are still more important than global. But, you know, as we continue to add LNG capacity, um, you know, the global factors will become more important. So as you just mentioned, LNG could become much more important in the future to U.S. producers. And you know, when we look at, at the LNG market, there are so many conflicting forces that seem to be at play, uh, particularly when you look at the global market, obviously. And there's the possibility that demand for LNG and U.S. LNG overseas may be tempered by ESG concerns, either ESG concerns that we see here domestically or ESG concerns globally. Uh, I think it was about a year, a little bit over a year ago in France, a $7 billion deal to import US LNG was canceled over methane, uh, concerns around methane emissions associated with US gas. So in your view, what is the role of policy here in the United States as well as in other places uh, on the growth of demand for US LNG? Yeah, it's, it's extremely significant, um, both on the demand side internationally and on the supply side um, here in the U.S. So so to start with the supply side um, discussion, I think a big question is, to what extent will the Biden administration continue to support uh, you know, further development of new LNG exports, you know, and, and help them get through the permitting process? Uh, now, I think the current gas crisis uh, and high energy prices in the U.S. and Europe are probably steering the Biden administration towards maybe a more pragmatic stance. But there are a number of factors that that could shape, um, you know, new LNG supply. Some are upstream, like the proposed uh, pause on on uh, leasing in uh, for oil and gas in federal lands and waters. Some are midstream, right? Their their process for approving new pipelines and liquefaction and gas storage facilities, particularly if they use a so-called social cost of carbon analysis to kind of, you know, effectively penalize or put a shadow carbon price on new projects. Uh, And then, of course, um, on the demand side, there's going to be the question of in the in the European market with the EU taxonomy, there's sort of their guidelines for for sustainable finance. Is gas going to be included? And now it looks like it will be at least through 2030. And then, as I mentioned, in Asia, you know, policies around uh, displacing coal in China in the in the residential heating and commercial sector, you know, replacing coal-fired power plants with gas in places like Thailand or India, 
those policy factors will have a huge role as well. So yeah, overall, I think both on the supply side and the demand side, um, you know, policy can play a really big role for the U.S. LNG sector. So policy does seem to be positively aligned for demand uh, going forward. Here, looking at the producers in the United States, despite the fact that gas prices have been high, gas producers have limited their investments into new capacity. Uh, lately, though, I have to note that this morning I read an article that said that Exxon and Chevron are planning new gas investments in, in the Permian Basin. Can you break down the categories of producers of, of gas here in the United States and explain how and why they are reacting to higher natural gas pricing and demand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I would start with the independents, right? And I would include Canada as well, right? I think the sort of integrated North American market, the independent gas-focused E&P companies, exploration production companies, uh, have done quite well over the last year or two, um, post-COVID, well, or, or sort of at least post the worst of the lockdowns, EQT uh, have, have bounced back quite well. Um, now, they are very focused on, on decarbonization, especially of their scope one and scope two emissions. So scope one is the direct emissions associated with upstream operations, and the methane flaring can be a big factor there for sure. Uh, and then scope two is the electricity they use um, or energy they use to, to power their operations. So trying to get that more geared to renewables as well. So, you know, for those companies, I think they have low methane intensity. They've really cleaned up their balance sheets. They have lots of reserves. Um, the biggest risk I see for them is not um, access to capital, but but much more so uh, access to takeaway capacity. And I think that's really true. Uh, in terms of the eastern U.S. and the Marcellus, right, where there's a lot of problems, you know, getting pipelines built, and also in western Canada as well, uh, pipelines to the, you know, uh, mid-continent market and to the export market in the west coast. So that's a challenge to the independents, I think. The, the ones that can decarbonize uh, should have lots of capital and, and be able to grow if they can find the pipelines and take away capacity. Uh, you mentioned the super majors. Generally, they are less focused on North American gas these days, especially the European super majors, which have divested quite a bit uh, from where they were, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, the larger U.S. super majors, I think, are looking at LNG. Um, they're also looking at, you mentioned the Permian, you know, gas that historically has been flared. You know, these companies are making commitments to zero flaring, uh, right? And so as part of that, they have to develop the gas uh, gathering and processing infrastructure, uh, and that will create you know new gas markets there that will likely support more LNG exports. Then there's a third group of companies, right, that um, I would say are the sort of private equity-backed smaller players uh, that have had a difficult time. Uh, and I don't follow those ones as closely, but it does seem to me that the private equity firms themselves that are dedicated to energy are back out there raising money and are starting to see a little bit more interest as well. So um, that's how how I break it down between the you know the independents, the super majors, and the private equity back groups, and you know, and all three are certainly doing better than they were a year or two ago. So, to what extent are these companies generally exercising capital restraint? You know, we've got these rising ESG concerns. We've got concerns about longer term stranding of assets, new pipelines, new in the ground assets. Depending on where demand for gas goes in the future, how much are they weighing this uncertain future when they're making their investment decisions? Not as much as you might think for a couple of reasons. I think, again, the bigger issue is with the pipelines and takeaway capacity. Um, I think they generally feel that gas 
will have a more constructive role in the, in the energy transition, right? Displacing coal and being a firming, you know, intermittency solution for renewables. They may be proven wrong on that, um, but that I think there is that that view among the the gas sector now that you know gas is is it may be a bridge fuel, but it's a long bridge, so to speak. Um, and also remember, a lot of these uh, big independents are, are going to be the low cost producers, right? So so they feel like they can make pretty good money in in a not just a three dollar Henry Hub environment or four dollars, but even two dollars. So they, in other words, they have a lot of incentive to grow supply. I don't think that they're quite, um, it, it seems to me the shale oil producers are a little bit more cautious right now, uh, in part because of this kind of overhang of OPEC spare capacity, which we're still winding down because of the uncertainty about um, gasoline demand and COVID, um, you know, the, and the fact that the shale oil producers got beaten up pretty badly by the markets the last few years. But shale gas, I think the, the, the gas independents seem a little more bullish to me and maybe feel like the combination of the lower cost um, production, cleaner balance sheets, and you know more favorable role for gas relative to oil and energy transition will give them maybe more of a pathway towards growth. Not unconstrained growth by any means, but, but growth nonetheless. Let's say we get to a point where domestic gas demand exceeds gas supply. Uh, and it could be such as during a, an extreme a weather event like that that happened in Texas and ERCOT, uh, the impact on ERCOT last, last winter. Is there a policy path that you might see to restricting LNG exports to keep domestic gas prices from spiking uh, and you know having kind of a knock-on negative effect on the U.S. economy in a situation where a, a shortage of, of U.S. supply? Yeah, I think there is. Um, yeah, I think I think the market is still the, the more critical factor, right? That if domestic gas prices spike, it's going to make U.S. LNG uncompetitive for exports. Now, some of that gas is under long-term takeaway capacity, but some of it is more flexible, right? Uh, in fact, a lot of it is more flexible. So, if there are lower-cost supplies out there, which you know is certainly a big question these days globally, um, that would kind of you know, take market share from higher cost U.S. LNG exports. Um, on the policy side, I think, you know, we are seeing uh, House Democrats and, and senators like Elizabeth Warren um, talk about legislation that would freeze new LNG permitting, right? And that's probably less about a short-term price spike, but more about kind of longer-term climate and affordability considerations. I don't think there's enough votes in the Senate to support that legislation. I think I'm pretty confident about that. Uh, and even the Biden administration itself is probably, you know, they've, they've been pretty careful to say they're not considering an LNG curtailment or export ban. Uh, they're trying to provide some, you know, security of demand signaling to the producers. Um, whether or not that works is a different story. If there was another Texas winter freeze, you know, I think you, what you might get is kind of a, some kind of moratorium for a very short term period of time. But but I can't I can't anticipate a you know a, um, a moratorium or a freeze on exports of existing supply that would last you know weeks and months and, and years that, that seems very unlikely to me. So there are uh, at least three LNG export projects terminals uh, in development here in the United States along the Gulf Coast right now. So you don't see any um, headwinds in their development either politically or from the demand side. Uh, I think overall it's pretty favorable. Um, there are, there are a couple of risks I can mention, but I think, you know, the, the EU gas crisis 
you know, it definitely has brought LNG back into the U.S. energy policy discussion, um, which is good. You know, Biden has been certainly out there with his team lobbying the Qataris, but apparently he's also talking to uh, some of the U.S. Uh, producers. Um, now, the problem is that there's not much the U.S. producers can actually do in the short term here. Um, but but there are some projects that are in the queue that will help with supply over the medium term, you know, 2023, 2024, 2025. Um what I think sometimes get, gets missed in the ESG and climate discussion is that the things that Biden wants the LNG industry to do, they're probably going to do anyway because of the shareholder and ESG pressure. So, for example, looking at CCUS, carbon capture, looking at, you know, reducing flaring, uh, looking at, you know, using more renewable energy. Those things are going to happen probably even without Biden administration action because those larger LNG developers, their shareholders want them to take those steps. The single biggest risk I see uh, for, for is the courts, right? I think the risk here is that even if Biden doesn't go too extreme on the policies, you know, and, and you know, some of the Democrats can't get anything through Congress, what you might see is environmental groups challenging new LNG export permits. Uh, and we just saw quite dramatically uh, the courts throw out the entire deep water leasing round uh, that the Department of Interior had for the Gulf of Mexico uh, on the grounds that... <clears throat> They agreed with environmentalists that it didn't properly consider climate considerations. So I would say the hardest risk to quantify, uh, but the one that's likely the most material is those federal courts. So I want to talk a little bit more about the situation in Europe with Russia and Ukraine right now. You know, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, the U.S. has reached out to Qatar and I think some other countries looking to see if there's some additional shipments of LNG that uh, those countries could ship to Europe as a backstop against any disruption in pipeline gas from Russia in, into Europe. Now, the U.S., I guess, conceivably uh, could come forward itself and supply more LNG to Europe, assuming that American gas producers were incentivized to increase their production to serve this purpose. And tying in with a little bit of the ESG discussion here, you know, this would be in line with, you know, U.S. national security concerns, but it would be counter, it seems, to the Biden administration's climate goals. What, in your view, is the path forward on this from a policy angle if the U.S. were to step up more significantly to, to, to supply Europe? Well, there's just not that much um, elasticity in supply, right? I mean, yes, on the upstream side, the higher price signal is flashing, and that should encourage more drilling. Um, but when it comes to exports, right, we're, we're infrastructure constrained. We only have so much capacity, you know, 10, 10 billion cubic feet a day or so of capacity for exports, which is fully utilized. So until you add more LNG export capacity, all you can really do is see, uh, you know, cargos that might otherwise go to Asia or, say, Brazil getting diverted to the European market. Not for any political reason, just because of a higher net back and higher prices in, in Europe right now. Um, I think then beyond that, it's a question of encouraging allies like Qatar to, to supply. And then, you know, working with the Europeans to figure out, do they want more U.S. LNG uh, in the long term, right, or medium term? And, and you know, will they, will they do offtake agreements for the LNG in the U.S. that's in the queue? So, you know, I think that some of the issues around... Um, in Nord Stream 2, this whole Russia-Ukraine crisis, it, it probably will cause cause the European leaders to rethink their gas policy strategy quite a bit. We're already seeing that, um, you know, the Germans basically have said that if there is a military conflict, they will walk away from Nord Stream 2, which is a big deal. There's more sanctions coming. 
And then that EU taxonomy I mentioned earlier for sustainable finance, they are saying, yeah, but the combination of, you know, insecurity about Russian supply of gas, plus the need for gas to balance our growing share of renewables means that we need to treat gas as a transition fuel at least to 2030, which creates a little bit more space as well. So there's a lot happening there, but most of it's in the medium to long term, and there's not much that you can do in the short term to help Europe. Could you walk us through some of the, you know, I, I guess, the context in which natural gas could play a medium to long term role, primarily as a transition fuel? You know, uh, what role, what will be the role of renewable natural gas or hydrogen or carbon capture and storage? You know, are these truly viable options for gas as a transitionary fuel? Yeah. So if you look at the International Energy Agency's um, net zero 2050 scenario, which was published, you know, uh, in the spring of 2021, it's quite influential. That that scenario basically says that to get to, you know, a global carbon neutral economy by 2050, you, you almost need to eliminate the role of so-called unabated gas, right? Which is just, or even as they call it, fossil gas. And as you, as you suggested, it's not that there won't be demand for gas, but, but it'll either be gas in the form of um, gas with carbon capitalization and storage, renewable natural gas, or hydrogen, blue and, blue and green hydrogen. The, the question really is, we know that all three of those technology pathways are viable today. Um, it's just a question of cost and scale. They're not cost competitive, but I think most of those scenarios uh, believe that after 2030, something like uh, blue hydrogen, which is you know natural gas going to a steam reformer, be, being transmissioned into, hi- into hydrogen, and then with the associated CO2 being sequestered, captured and sequestered, that that will be more price competitive uh, and can displace not just gas, but, but coal in, in sectors like heating, uh, heavy transportation uh, and manufacturing. So it's really that, you know, how do we get from here to there? But I think the technical pathways are pretty viable. The question is really much like wind and solar on the electric power side. I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, those were sort of niche technologies. And then as costs has come down, um, they've become more competitive captured market share. The same thing will happen with renewable natural gas, carbon capture and hydrogen. And well, how does that happen? Well, first of all, you have to add a lot of manufacturing capacity, government uh, subsidies. So I think all that is taking place. It's a question of time. Now, you could also say that if we get on a green hydrogen pathway where you can make hydrogen from electrolysis using wind or solar, then that would displace natural gas. If you're on a blue hydrogen pathway, uh, then that would still be a great market for natural gas um, because the key, it would be the key feedstock, not you know renewable electricity. Renewable natural gas would also displace a lot of you know methane-based uh, feedstock, but it would it would preserve at least a lot of the existing gas infrastructure, um, you know pipeline storage, distribution, things like that that would be important. And then obviously the the best thing for the sort of existing fossil gas industry would be to figure out the carbon capture, utilization, and storage, because then you would basically be having a more decarbonized natural gas product that would continue to provide you know home heating and and industrial you know, power and, and uh, transportation, all the things that we're seeing today. Uh, interestingly, the net zero scenario is not particularly bullish on carbon capture, utilization and storage for gas, with the exception of a few developed markets like Japan, maybe Germany, places like that. Um, they're much more bullish on hydrogen. So time will tell to see if that's the right forecast. 
Would that be uh, blue hydrogen made from gas or talking about green hydrogen or both? I think it's both. I think it's very location specific. So if, if you're Chile and you have immense wind capacity and hydroelectric capacity, you know, more than you could ever use, the idea of using some of that wind to make green hydrogen for export makes a lot of sense. Or if you're Morocco with kind of surplus solar power, great, you know, make green hydrogen and sell it to Europe. But if you're, say, Alberta or West Texas uh, or North Dakota and you're flaring gas uh, and you're looking for a new market uh, and you have, you know, petrochemical infrastructure like steam reformers and you have natural carbon sinks, you know, then blue hydrogen will make a lot of sense, you know, for the uh, industrial heartland in Alberta or the port of Houston. So I think it's very location specific. uh, And I think there's a lot of room for both. You know what really stands out to me as as you're talking about all this is is really how uncertain and complex the demand outlook for gas really is. We're not talking about just looking at overall standard demand. We're talking about so many factors that are coming into play. What are the demand implications for gas going forward? What are the expectations? What do you think is going through the mind of the producers who are who are producing this gas? What are they seeing of the future? It's it's a very broad question, but just. Interested in what you what you might think about it? Yeah, I wrote a piece for the World Energy Council um, four or five years ago, and, and the idea was that you know producers are going to have to fight for gas market share, and, and I didn't mean fight on a price basis, but but fight for the role of gas in energy transition, because you know there are those that don't think gas should be part of the energy transition and part of the climate solution, and you know those those people are backing um, you know more of a 100% electrification pathway based on renewables, which I think is interesting because I'm certainly not against that. I, I see renewables, you know, playing a very significant role. And, you know, I'm quite active involved in a solar manufacturing company personally. So, I mean, I, I definitely see the role of renewables, but I spent my whole career working on energy security. And it's pretty clear that energy security really de- depends on resilience and resilience means having multiple fuels and multiple technologies and multiple geographies. So I think if we displace natural gas prematurely and we don't fully develop opportunities like blue hydrogen or CCUS or renewable natural gas, uh, we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on electrification and supply chain. That means pressure on the grid, pressure on critical minerals and batteries, you know, pressure on local electricity distribution. And I think that that's risky uh, and it could be expensive. And I think we're seeing some of that in Europe already. So, you know, multiple pathways uh, towards net zero, I, that's the destination we want to get to. So I think the gas industry is doing a better job of, of making the case. Uh, it's certainly a lot easier now when prices are high in places like Europe and we're seeing the dislocations when you don't have gas security. But I think that battle will continue. So I guess to answer your question, to some degree, the, the long-term demand for gas is in the hands of producers and whether they can convince stakeholders, their shareholders, governments, and customers that they can be part of this transition pathway uh, and become carbon neutral at a reasonable cost relative to other alternatives. Well, I guess a final question for you then, uh, taking off on what you just said. Is there a technology uh, that you are particularly excited about or you think has you know really strong potential to ensure that gas is a viable longer-term resource as we go through the energy transition? Uh, anything that, that really kind of you think has special potential? Yeah, I'm pretty interested in, in uh, not just hydrogen, but also ammonia, right? The, the possibility for blue ammonia. Um, you know, the thing about ammonia is that um, hydrogen is pretty difficult to ship. Uh, it's a very light molecule. It's not easy to put in a pipeline. 
but ammonia, uh, well, there's two pathways with ammonia. One is to is to actually you know convert hydrogen to ammonia, uh, use the ammonia as sort of a liquid carrier, and then convert the ammonia back into hydrogen gas at the destination. Or the second path is to simply uh, you know produce blue ammonia with that carbon capture and sequestration, and then use the ammonia directly in a boiler or engine that can run it instead of oil uh, or LNG. And the, the, the prime target for that seems to be shipping, uh, which is a quite interesting because of the you know heavy oil they're using in the industry right now. And I guess my key takeaway really here, given our sort of U.S. focus, is um, you know for people to take a close look at what the Biden administration is doing. You know, I think maybe their um, support for natural gas has been nowhere near as public uh, as what the Trump administration is doing. And there are certainly those in Congress who are anti-natural gas. But I think there's a bit more of a pragmatic streak in the Biden administration than people may realize when it comes to natural gas, particularly under the current market conditions. And again, the key risk to me really is the courts. And maybe it's a bit of a recency bias, but I'm, I'm a little bit rattled by that recent uh, court decision to cancel the, the Gulf of Mexico deep water auction. And I think those that's where a lot of the risk will be for natural gas in the U.S., more so than anything the Biden administration can do in the next year or two. Robert, thanks for talking. My pleasure. I uh, enjoyed the chance to chat and look forward to doing it again down the road. Today's guest has been Robert Johnston, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources Practice and a research scholar at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy. Thanks to our editorial assistant, Nick Rolliter, for his help in producing this episode. Visit the Climate Center's website for more podcasts, as well as energy policy research and blog posts from experts in the field. To keep up with the latest from the Center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.